Okay. You ready? Any last questions before we get into it? No, I think I'll just make you big. Okay. Here we go. (laughs) Welcome back to The Inner Circle, the podcast bringing you into honest conversations about climate action. My name's Erin Andrews. I'm the founder and executive director of Impact Zero. Together, we'll uncover what's working, what's not, and how we can change the system to value people and the planet. Together, we're making the impossible possible. For this week's updates, I am once again going to plug how you can get involved with Impact Zero's five-year visioning process. We will be holding a stakeholder engagement event on September 29th at 4.30 p.m. Eastern, where we're basically going to be asking you a bunch of questions about how you think Impact Zero should be supporting folks to build circular systems. So we have both that live online opportunity to actually talk to our team, but if you're not available for the actual event, you're also welcome to fill out a Google form that we have online where you can basically tell us what you think. Honestly, we want to be able to source people's thoughts and opinions, whether you can make it to the event or not. So definitely check that out. This week, I would like to shout out our team member, Melissa Suarez. So Melissa is the marketing director at Impact Zero. She actually started off as being our social media manager, and she would coordinate all of our social media posts back when we were actually posting. She absolutely killed it. Um, But recently, she's actually taken on a little bit more responsibility in the organization to oversee our entire marketing team. So that includes this podcast. It also includes our email marketing and our social media management. So she makes sure that all of the campaigns that we run are coordinated across all of our platforms. And she's just an absolute rock star. I love Melissa. She knows that. She doesn't need me to say that here. But I do want to give her a shout out because of all the awesome work that she's been doing. Lastly, I want to share that if you are a company and you want to work with Melissa and perhaps run a campaign in partnership with Impact Zero, then that is absolutely an option for folks who are values aligned. So if you would like to spread the word about a campaign or something awesome that you're working on, then please don't hesitate to reach out to me at erin at impactzero.ca and we can figure out how that will look. This week, we have a very exciting guest. Her name is Molly Kawahata. She is the founder of Systemic Impact Strategies and has been sought out by leading brands, corporations, nonprofits, campaigns, foundations, and thought leaders to advise on strategic communications and advocacy strategy. She regularly does podcasts, panels, and talks on climate change to help organizations improve their communications and framing, focus their work around systemic climate action, and engage more effectively with the public. Most recently, Molly actually worked with Patagonia to produce a documentary called The Scale of Hope, where it follows Molly kind of like through her entire story, but it focuses around um, her preparation for an expedition in the Alaska mountain range because she's also a mountain climber. And it really kind of shows how her as a human says, okay, what can I actually do to make a difference? But then it connects climate with policy change, with individual action. And it honestly is centered around this really incredible story of her doing this expedition. So if you want to take a look and watch that film, it actually is releasing today. And you can do that at patagonia.ca slash films. 
Molly previously worked on Google's energy team, where she helped launch the 24-7 Carbon-Free Energy Compact in partnership with the UN, a global coalition of national and state governments, energy suppliers, climate tech solution providers, clean energy buyers, and other influential organizations on a collective mission to transform global electricity grids to absolute zero. Prior to Google, Molly served as an advisor for energy and climate change at the Obama White House, where she helped implement President Obama's energy agenda and his climate action plan. She's a fellow with the Clean Energy Leadership Institute, a member in residence with Sea Change, and an advisory council member to the AAPI Victory Fund. Outside of work, Molly is passionate about alpinism and climbs mountains throughout North America with a focus on Alaska. Let's jump into my conversation with Molly. This season of The Inner Circle is sponsored by Reverse Logistics Group, or RLG. Live in 80-plus countries with over 30 years of experience, RLG is a tech-enabled organization that offers tailored recycling and circular economy solutions to meet your needs. RLG puts together convenient solutions that will reduce your environmental impact. RLG gets it. Businesses like yours don't always have the time or the resources to spend thinking about environmental compliance and the health of our planet. RLG is a one-stop solution for compliance, returns, and recycling programs across all Canadian provinces and product categories, including batteries, electronics, and packaging. For example, in Ontario, RLG is collaborating with Circular Materials to help brand owners manage their collection and recycling requirements under the new Blue Box regulation. If you're interested in learning more, contact them at Canada at rev-log.com or visit them at www.rev-log.com. That's www.rev-log.com. All right, so welcome Molly to the Inner Circle. I'm so happy to have you with me today. To get started, do you mind just introducing yourself with your name and what you're currently working on? Yeah, I'm Molly Kawahara. Very glad to be here with you all. I'm the founder of Systemic Impact Strategies, a climate consulting and strategy firm and former White House advisor for climate change at the Obama White House. Yeah, so that's a very crazy list, I think, of things that you've done. Like you've been very accomplished since the beginning of your career. Yeah, it's kind of a crazy story. So when I was 17 years old, there was a guy running for office who was really inspiring to me, like a lot of young people whose name was Barack Obama. I remember no one could pronounce his name. We thought it was Barack Obama. And the biggest challenge was name recognition. So I got into student organizing there and then went to college and disenrolled from university for a bit so that I could go do a stint at the White House on communications and then went back and realized I didn't really like school. It was not conducive to happiness for me. So graduated as fast as I could, moved back to D.C., I was at the Office of Management and Budget working on federal management issues and implementation and then moved over to the Domestic Policy Council where we were squarely focused on climate and energy in his second term. You were there for four years, right? For throughout the entire second term? Collectively, yeah. End of the first term into the second and then a stint earlier. Yeah. Felt like a long time. I'll say that. 
Yeah. I mean, it seems like that's a very intense place to be working. I'm sure people care a lot about the work that they're doing as well. But I know you had a little bit of a difficult start at your time in the White House. So can you tell us about when you got started getting your diagnosis and kind of how that impacted your beginnings there? Yeah. I mean, working there was the greatest honor and privilege of my life. I truly wouldn't trade it for anything. I worked with some of the most incredible, inspiring people that I've ever known and probably will ever know. So it was incredible honor, but it does take a huge toll on your body. Working those hours, multiple all-nighters in a week with all of your teammates walking down the halls at 2 a.m. You see everybody in the office as if it's noon on a Thursday. <laughs> so it's just kind of crazy experiences. There's rapid aging. You see rapid aging not only in the president, but also in his staff. That's like a pretty real thing. So anyway, my second day at the White House on the domestic policy council team, I got diagnosed with bipolar two disorder. And it was one of the scariest experiences in my life and the best thing that ever happened to me. Because I knew my whole life that like my mind didn't seem to work like everyone else's. You know, there were these debilitating lows where you had insomnia, you couldn't get out of bed. It was hard to eat, avoid all human social interaction. And you just kind of fade and fade. And I remember I started to think that the idea of living a long life was probably expanding beyond my reach. That wasn't going to be an option for me. But there were also coupled with that, you know, that wasn't the whole story. We know what depression is. It's pretty recognizable. And these were the classic symptoms. And so I got misdiagnosed with depression, which is actually quite harmful for bipolar disorder because the medications aggravate the disorder. And there were these alarming highs. And so I would go to the gym at 2 a.m. And if I was crying, I would all of a sudden start laughing, which you know is not common. I write rambling emails. I would get really obsessed with like weirdly specific subjects that no one else cared about, like Saison's dark period and the science of sunblock and species of palm tree, like really strange obsession. And I would want to talk about it with everyone without kind of an understanding of how much I was obsessing. So these kind of weird things, but I was able able to be, and largely with a lot of support, still pretty high functioning and, you know, graduating from college and entering these extremely high stress, fast paced environments that were also mission driven, which is why I think I was still able to thrive in them, but it was very hard. So getting that diagnosis, I remember thinking like to myself, based on my own biases at the time, I was like, more than half of Americans experience depression at some point in their life. That's what the statistics say. It's very common. Bipolar disorder, I remember thinking that's like a mental illness, mental illness. You know, like I felt like it kind of distinguished me in a way that was really scary. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it was the start of treatment and my life becoming a lot easier. You realize your baseline is super off. Like I remember just thinking, how can everyone else endure the suffering that I can't? And this level of suffering is just the cost of living. Mm -hmm. This is just what it's like to be a human. And then to realize that that's not necessarily true, that the level of suffering I was experiencing was because of an untreated mental illness that I lived with for about a decade, not something inherent of the deep pain that has to be life every day. Mm -hmm. Life still has a lot of struggle. But so anyway, that was the start of a huge process of getting diagnosed and then going through a year and a half long journey to find the right medication, which was like being a guinea pig for bipolar disorder. They really need to titrate medication. And it's very different for everyone. And the side effects I had were extremely difficult to bear with my job, like it being hard to stay awake, forgetting words, needing to eat every five minutes, like weird, really debilitating symptoms that meant that that medication wasn't feasible for me. So then going through these processes of like, okay, we'll try this one. Okay, we'll try this one was also very hard while I was working. 
but it was also the start of life getting a lot easier and more manageable. And so I honestly came out the other side being like, I didn't know how good life could be. Mm-hmm. I had limited experience with like the normal human emotions of happiness and sadness because I knew hypomania and depression and both are incredibly intensive. So I was almost weary of experiencing these like normal human emotions because I felt I had little experience with them. And I knew they're like my friends, hypomania, depression, I knew well. Right. It's a wild experience. And I also knew, and we can get more into this, but I knew that there would be something lost in getting treatment. Mm. I kind of knew this would happen and it did, that I lost my ability to write poetry. Okay. I really liked writing poetry before, but like you lose this, I personally, not for everybody, I personally lost that ability to connect in that way and to dig deep inside myself, to express myself in that way. So it's kind of fascinating, the changes that happen. But for me, I think it's reflective of the fact that there are a lot of gifts that come with these mental illnesses and struggle in general for everybody that I think a lot of times our struggle can be our greatest strength and empowerment and opportunity. Yeah, it's what makes everybody unique, right? And the way that you see the world and approach Mm -hmm. the world is going to be so different, which is 100% a superpower. And, you know, it's manifested in all of these other cool things that you're able to do. So yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. Yeah, it was an incredible experience to go through. Mm -hmm. Your time in the White House, obviously, a lot going on personally, a lot going on professionally. I don't know if this is accurate, but it seems as an outsider that like the White House is kind of like this like ultimate goal for people to get into right in their careers if they start in politics or if they start in advocacy and like it's a really cool place to be able to make a huge difference and I think a lot of people recognize that but policy feels like a really like far away thing for people in their day-to-day lives but I know that your grandparents experiences inform your worldview and so I would just really love to hear more about the painting that you found at your parents house yeah so I mean this was part of my journey into thinking deeper about policy and its impacts. Again, like you're saying, we understand policy at a really abstract level, understanding how it impacts the lives of the public. It's kind of a different thing. And so I had a huge example of that in my family and my history. So there was this painting growing up and you know how like at your parents' house, you have like the things on the wall are always there. So you'd stop noticing them. Mm-hmm. And this was one of those. It was this watercolor painting of what I thought were kind of little houses with snow and mountains in the background and these two lonely figures. And I I just thought it was kind of a nice painting. And it was literally in my 20s where I had moved away and came home to visit, I think for Christmas. And so because it's a second time you've been away, it like you see it again. And when I saw it, it hit me what it was of. And I felt really stupid because it was obviously a painting of Japanese American internment during World War II, which was when my grandparents and entire family was imprisoned on their own soil as Americans because they were of Japanese descent. And that was a policy that was written, established by a Democrat. I think about that a lot. And it was an executive action. And in our work, we were doing all policy via executive action during the Obama administration in the second half because there were so many limitations we had in working with Congress, but we still weren't going to wait. We were still going to do everything we could in our power to impact and help people's lives in the public. So it was interesting to think about that. I did go to Topaz, Utah, and it was a wild experience. And I kind of thought it would be like healing to finally see this place that was the source of my grandparents' family's pain. And you kind of, you live with that pain. It's sort of inside you. Even though it's not something often talked about in Japanese American culture, my family actually refers to it then and now actually still as camp. Hmm. They'd say, at camp, we did this. At camp, that happened. 
which was fascinating, right? To think about how you can conceptualize something later on. But going there was not a healing experience. It was actually, it kind of messes you up. And I've heard a lot of people who've had this experience visiting places that are of tremendous suffering of their ancestors or families Mm. or grandparents. But it was also incredible to see the place because unlike Manzanar, for example, which was another site of Japanese American internment, the folks in San Francisco area were sent to Topaz and that has been completely taken down, decimated. There are ruins there. So you can see literally broken mugs and pots and old stoves, but it's barren. And while you're there, there are desert bushes everywhere. So it's hard to even make out these barracks until you can see it from above. And in the film, we had a drone. And so I saw it later and I realized, oh my God, you can see this whole layout. And there are these little rectangles that were the sites of barracks of where all folks lived, including my grandparents. And so we brought the painting and I was able to line them up with the background. And I saw that lining that up and then knowing because of records where my grandpa's barrack was, we realized that that was actually his barrack mm. in the painting. Right. And we actually didn't know our whole lives why we had that painting in our family because one, we did know he didn't paint it. Um, we didn't know who painted it, but we knew it wasn't from him. And so it was just this painting of something, but that was probably received as a gift because it was his barrack. So it was a really powerful experience. But I reflect on that because understanding that story is understanding the power of policy Mm -hmm. to be used in good ways to help people and to be used in ways that oppress people. And you just know how powerful it is. So I think over time in my life, just knowing that story, having that story inside me led maybe subconsciously a bit for me to enter politics because you just know this is how you help people is through policy. I mean, it's a very clear demonstration on the very real impacts it can have on people's lives in the power of the executive orders. Yeah. It blows my mind that it's like a guy signed a paper in the Oval Office. And then all of a sudden, hundreds of thousands of people, Americans, lost everything they owned, had to be forced relocated, got on trains, were initially sent to horse stables where they had to stay and sleep on hay on the ground. Men were relocated to a desert where they live for years. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of mind blowing to think about like one signature led to people living in a barren desert for years. Yeah. So it's like the power of policy. And just to think, also, it was the same building I worked in, right? The same staff who made that executive order were walking the same halls that we were walking, where decades later, we used those halls to fight for social justice instead. Yeah, using the same tactics, but for good. Yeah, exactly. The power of policy. And just for context, because I know that's the American lens, but this happened in Canada as well, Mm -hmm. starting in 1942 until 1949. We had over 22,000 Japanese Americans in internment camps across BC in other provinces as well. So just for the audience members who are listening from Canada, this is not purely an American thing. It was both Canadian and American, which shows that that kind of, you know, motivation to do pretty shitty things can be used also for good, also in our political system. So I think that the takeaways from that are definitely applicable in our context as well. Yeah, absolutely. And just, I mean, the power of oppression to ripple, you know, these things can expand far beyond one country's policy or, you know, we take notes of each other. Mm -hmm. So it is 
like very powerful to think about. Yeah. Having this way of thinking about policy and your personal experiences and the way that you think about your mind and how all of these things work. I think that like bringing all of your experiences together as difficult and as much of a like process as it must have been to go through, you know, 10 plus years of challenges with mental health. And then, you know, this historic, like ancestral kind of links to all of these unthinkable experiences, the way that you've been able to use those and turn it into what you're fighting for now is so, so powerful. And I actually want to just read something that you wrote And it's in the documentary for the listeners, because I think it's really powerful. And I want to kind of get your reflections and expand on it slightly. So quoting Molly here, (laughs) uh, when you have a mental illness, you think about your mind all the time. I think that obsession led me to contemplate how to fix climate change by harnessing the power of the human mind. We can't address the climate crisis without systemic change. We can't get systemic change without policy. And we can't get policy without the public on board. And we can't get them on board until they feel something. That is a very powerful piece that you wrote. So I just want to leave space if there's anything that you want to add to that or reflections that you want to contribute to that. Yeah. I mean, that's my theory of change. And I had this realization actually in 2015, when I was sitting at my desk at the White House and, you know, a lot of your listeners probably spend some time at desks and have probably also experienced realizations at those desks. And mine came then in 2015 while at the White House, when it hit me that we can try to do everything we can in the policy space. And we were, but we would always be limited if we didn't have overwhelming support from the public and the people who represented them in Congress. And that's what we were experiencing. And so it hit me that it's like systemic change is policy. Policy is elected. Elected is campaigns and support from the public. And that comes when you feel something. So all of a sudden, I realized that this connection kind of by transitive property between policy comes down to human feeling and emotion, which is something I knew very well, you know, living with bipolar two disorder, experiencing every end of that spectrum. And so there's a lot of psychology research behind this. And again, this kind of is when my mental illness started connecting with this work in policy that all kind of just started coming together in a way I never would have expected. In the research, you can find something very clear because that's when I started looking into it. My theory of change started to evolve. So I started looking, I was like, oh, there's this whole field called psychology, which I happen to study, which studies the power of the human mind and how it works with the body and how, you know, behaviors and things like that. Like, why aren't we harnessing that? So one thing is very clear in the literature when you start looking into it, which is that fear, guilt, and shame, which is something everybody experiences, is antithetical to human motivation. Meaning if I induce fear, guilt, and shame in somebody, it actually has a tendency to make them physically retract. You take up less space and it has a paralyzing impact. You have a freezing response. It's a trauma response. And so what I started looking at with the narratives that in the U.S. started with Al Gore in the Inconvenient Truth film, which is one, a film about a PowerPoint, first off. <laughs> Second off, it created this narrative that kind of led us in this direction, rooted very deeply in fear and then guilt and shame. And so we've been making people feel that and then asking them why they aren't acting. Any psychologist who knows the space could have told you that's what you're actually inducing to happen. Now, fear tactics are often used, especially in American politics, but they are intended to make people not act and they do, Mm -hmm. right? They are intended to make people on the other side not vote, feel hopeless, feel paralyzed. So it can be used deliberately for what it can do. Now, the research also showed something really compelling, which is that hope 
was very effective. It didn't just feel good. It's effective in getting people to realize that there's an endpoint. So this is a narrative that also is not being told on climate, which is that we have all of these issues within the adaptation and resilience space of having to deal with the impacts of climate change that are already here and on the way. That's real and that's valid. And that's its own policy space. The narrative that doesn't exist in the public is mitigation. And that's the work we were doing, which is actually taking the problem and solving it. And when you look at climate from that perspective, you realize, oh my God, there's an endpoint. There's a promised land. And by the way, we are steadily marching toward it. It's called the zero carbon economy in the future. And we are making progress. And in the US with this Inflation Reduction Act, I feel like we just turn this corner and we can see the promised land. We can see that zero carbon economy. And it has cleaner skies, less pollution, clean air and water for folks, more jobs, more equality that comes with all of these things that come with the zero carbon economy. And we are getting closer. And that's powerful, right? So when you think about the hope frame that relies on this idea of feasibility, that actually it's possible, it's doable. And like, I like to say climate is the best bandwagon you can join, like come on board (laughs) because it's already happening. So if more people join in, we will get there faster. And that's what the research also shows is that, for example, this is a funny one, but in the psychology of motivation, if you deprive a mouse of food and water, and so it's hungry and thirsty, and it has to go through a maze, it goes through it much slower as expected. But when it sees the food at the end of the maze and the water at the end of the maze, it starts running. Now, that's counterintuitive to what would probably be in the mouse's self-interest, which is it's there. So just keep going slow toward it. You want to maintain your resources. When you see the goal and it's feasible, you get this energy, right? You dig deep and you go toward that goal. And I think that's what's happening with climate. So the idea that it's doable, that's what I'm trying to tell everybody. It's just feasible. (laughs) That's what the work of climate mitigation is. And it's really powerful when people come to understand that. It's like you're sitting on the couch and somebody comes in and they're like, hey, we have a huge problem. And honestly, we're kind of doomed and screwed and it's too late. And by the way, it's your fault. But like, will you kind of help me? What are you going to do? You're going to do that fear, guilt, shame response, right? You're going to sit back, feel helpless, freeze and not do anything. And honestly, by the way, I don't blame you. I would do this. Like, I don't blame people for the fact that they don't want to act when they've been fed these narratives. Now, if you're sitting on the couch and somebody runs in and they're like, hey, we have a huge problem, but we have solutions. And in the process of deploying those solutions, we're going to help everybody. And it's doable. And we're getting there. Will you come help me? How would you respond? Oh, absolutely. I'd be like running out the door. You know, I want to go with those people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Not only is it like you can do something, but you want to. Yeah. And we need to get people like those solutions for systemic change, which vary by country. But there are so many opportunities to ensure you're influencing policy in the U.S. We kind of look at where I gear people towards rather than sort of greening their life, riding their bike to work. All great things. Totally encourage people to do that. But at the same time, influencing policy is where we're going to actually solve the crisis. And that's where the true power lies for everybody. Honestly, it's pretty validating to hear you say that because I mean, a lot of people, you know, everyone hates the doom messaging of climate change. You know, it's like, we don't want to feel like we really can't do anything else. And like, 
you know, are on track to three degrees of warming and like, you can't stop it now. Climate change has started. Like, of course, it's demotivating. Like, logically, that makes sense. But I think it's really hard for people to get out of it, as you say, because that has been the overwhelming narrative around it. And so I always kind of say like planting seeds, you know, and being like, hey, this is possible. Do you know this is possible? Like visualize this world with me. Like we do that at Impact Zero. Yeah. And that's why we have such an engaged community, I think. Yeah. You know, because we're like, look at all these examples of people doing awesome things. Like, don't you want to join us? Yeah. Manifest it. Yeah. Right. Manifest that zero carbon economy. Then you're going to be involved. You're going to see these opportunities Mm -hmm. for supporting and helping this movement. And that's one thing I try to tell everybody is that whoever you are, whoever you voted for, whatever lifestyle behaviors you have, you are not only welcome in the climate movement, there is a place that's been waiting for you, mm-hmm. right? Every single person has an important role to play and that's where their true power lies. Absolutely, yeah. And and something else that you say of like needing to know that it is possible, I think is very, very powerful. And I, I know when we talked previously, you mentioned that you, like what you just said, you know, there's a spot for everybody. You don't ever shy away from talking to people who might be a little bit more dismissive of the climate crisis, which is very different from me. I am afraid to talk to those people a lot of the time. So I've kind of just like not, cause I'm like, okay, you know, bring the people on board who are already like most of the way there, just like get them over the hump. But obviously we need to bring everybody into the conversation. So can you kind of like expand on that? Like how you talk to those people that I think a lot of people kind of dismiss, honestly. Yeah. I mean, this is a big thing in the US, right? You know who our president was (laughs) before President Biden. It's like there was a lot happening with how people were responding and voting and supporting. Now, I love talking to groups of folks that vote differently from me. I have gone into rooms with people who self-identify as Republicans and voted for Trump. And I love talking to them because I love telling them that there is still a place for you. And there are a lot of other kind of psychological factors that have been happening in the U.S. around this phenomenon. I don't even like saying its name, but the phenomenon of that guy, which is, I think, a lot of invalidation that people have experienced their whole lives because of folks on the coast that have looked down on them. And so when there's somebody that comes along and tells you, I see you and you matter to me, of course, you don't turn your back on that person. Now, whether or not that person is actually fighting for you, I mean, that's where it's like ridiculous. There is voting against your self-interest is a common thing in the US. But ultimately, one way we can bring people in is by talking about a component of climate change, and that's pollution. So we went on a journey at the White House to understand what are the most effective ways to talk about climate change. We found some really interesting things some things that surprised me personally. So we tested the economic frame. At a macro level, this is saying for every decade you don't fight climate change, it's going to cost our economy this much more. Totally accurate. Not super relevant to everyday people because it's very abstract and hard in their everyday life. Talking at a macro level. We tested the national security frame. This is FEMA response, flood standards, climate-related disasters. This is like the scary doom and gloom stuff that has paralyzed people. Of course, it's important to acknowledge and recognize realities. But at the same time, as a narrative, not super effective. It's hard for people to relate in their everyday life, although that is changing somewhat because it is becoming so common to see these climate-related disasters. The environmental frame was also tested. And this is the one that shocked people because we think of climate as an environmental issue. We house it under sustainability. It is not just an environmental issue. 
So talking about endangered species, polar bears in the Arctic, melting glaciers, again, that's a narrative that needs to be led by scientists. And they're doing a good job of that. That does not need to be led by people like me who are trying to win public support on this. So ultimately, people who are struggling to get by, which is a lot of people in America, we have high levels of income inequality. They don't have the luxury of thinking about things happening thousands of thousands of miles away when they're making decisions about affording rent or groceries, which is a reality for a lot of folks here. So the idea that you're telling them the polar bears is a huge turnoff. It's a lack of acknowledgement of their suffering. Ultimately, what we found by far, unequivocally, the most effective way to talk about climate change was through the lens of public health. Now, initially, you're just like, what? What does that mean? (laughs) And so this is when we start getting into how you went over these rooms of Republicans. You talk about pollution. Now, pollution is responsible for increased rates of asthma, heart disease, cancer, miscarriage, impacts to male fertility. The list goes on forever. And communities of color are significantly likelier to have to live near the things causing these things, which are like power plants, refineries, toxic waste sites, polluting highways, right? Our electricity and transportation systems, which are causing impacts to public health at inordinately high rates. So this is where climate change becomes climate justice. It's through the lens of public health. And when you talk about pollution, everybody wants clean air and water. It is a fundamental human right. It is the most essential thing to our survival. And people in America don't have that. It's a privilege to have clean air. So that is a very effective narrative. And I have talked to people who said, I care about climate change. And I talked to my mother who voted for Trump. And when I say climate change, she doesn't care. She says liberals, elites, blah, blah, blah. But when I say pollution, she starts to listen. She's actually on board. So there's something really powerful in using inclusive frames. And again, I don't blame people for the fact that this is what reaches them and the other things don't, because that's largely a product of their lived experience and the conditions they're living in currently. We need to meet people where they are. And we do that by talking about public health. It is inclusive. And it is recognizing the suffering of a lot of different folks in a lot of different communities. Absolutely. And those trends are 100% reflected in Canada as well. I mean, one thing actually that I encourage folks to look up, there's a city called Sarnia, kind of close to where I live. And if you go on Google Maps and you do satellite view of Sarnia and the southern side of the city, there is a refinery a ton of industry around an indigenous reserve. Mm -hmm. And it's intentional. This was set up, especially like in the States as well, with like redlining and all these other like factors over time. Like this is intentional, again, through policy, right? That set up these systems to play out this way. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's just like really, really important to see the full picture. And again, yes, communicate it back to people as like how it impacts their day to day. Yeah. Because like carbon emissions are so theoretical and like people can't connect to it. But yeah, if you say like, this is the health impact on like you and people around you and other humans that you hopefully care about, How could you ignore that? Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think, such an important point, which is that, yes, these impacts to public health and where these polluting structures go, that is not a natural outcome. People like to kind of look at that and just be like, oh, that's how that happened. No, those are deliberate decisions built into policy based on a lot of the other factors you've talked about, for example, redlining. And research has actually shown in the U.S., that the number one indicator of where you stick a toxic waste site is the racial makeup of the community surrounding it far more than income. Meaning you don't just have to be poor to have to have one of these in your community. You have to be a person of color. That's powerful, right? Like this says a lot about how we're looking at public health 
and whose health matters and whose health we consider expendable. And that's why climate action is so powerful because we're fighting against that, which is why when you fight climate change, you improve everybody's quality of life. You clean up the air for folks. You put people back to work. You create jobs. You invest in communities that I've seen no economic development. I mean, so many good things happen in society where they also alleviate racial, economic, and social disparities. And that's why we're fighting for this, right? It's, it's because it impacts a lot more than polar bears. Totally. And I really think that with a lot more people who are doing this work, like yourself and other people who are listening to this, you know, if people start adopting this and communicating this way, it's going to have like exponential, like we are on our way, as you say, like this is a bandwagon that's already very much in motion. It's just a matter of like jumping on board. That's what I think is like, this is the greatest thing you could be a part of. Yeah, We're doing all of these good things for society. There's progress. It is not only doable, it's happening. It's done. We are going to get there. Yeah, We are going to get there. That goal is there and we are making ways toward it. So like, come on board. Don't you want to be a part of this? You know, like we had a clean energy CEO in the US who said, I want to look my kids in the eye and say, we did everything we could and we made enough progress for you guys to finish the job. Mm -hmm. That's what we're doing, right? It's this moral obligation, not only for ourselves, although we are also impacted by these positive things that happen to society, but for our children, grandchildren and future generations, we have that moral obligation. And by the way, that's also an effective frame. Along with public health, the moral obligation to our children and grandchildren is effective. Mm. People care about that, right? Because you're never going to compromise on the health and well-being of your children. Yeah, that's actually very, very good to know. I mean, because anecdotally, the number of people I've worked with that are, you know, they always reference their kids of like, that's why they made the switch of career or that's why they started an organization. Yeah, it's great. And like youth who are going through and like hearing all this negative narrative, it's like, you can even make a difference by being that inspiration for the people who do have power, you know, to make a change. So everyone has a potential positive impact to make. Yes. Not that, you know, kids are the ones I I don't like when people say, you know, the kids are going to save the world because like we have, Mm -hmm. you know, potential to do it now. But um, I think it's it's really powerful to know that everybody can be a motivating factor for somebody else around them. Exactly. And one thing that's interesting is how Gen Z looks at climate, which is very different from how millennials do and definitely different how boomers do, which is like millennials were fed the carbon footprint narrative that actually came from BP. That was a deliberate effort to switch the focus of climate away from the fossil fuel industry and policies that would regulate them and put it onto individuals and make people shame each other for the fact that they get on planes or drive normal cars or live in normal houses. Gen Z has gotten this whole narrative around you're doomed and there's nothing you can do. And I I just got on TikTok. I see that. I mean, anytime I write about hope, it's actually not really working for them. <laughs> I realize like I need to talk more about like educational things because they can't feel it or hear it at this time, at least. Because that's honestly, I mean, one, there's validity to it. They're facing horrific things like all of us, but also that's marketing campaign. We have to acknowledge both parts of that. But at the same time, I have so much hope when I hear or see what Gen Z talks about. I feel like they're so spot on and super focused on social justice, super focused on environmental justice, understand these issues far better than I think millennials do. So I do have a lot of hope when I see kind of what they're doing. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's just another like validation for like the bandwagon will continue too. you know, it's not just going to like die out when, you know, millennials start getting tired. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to continue to to grow and expand. So yeah, I think that everything that you're working towards is so amazing and so aligned with what we talk about at Impact Zero. So I'm so happy that you're able to share that with our audience. And we are running out of time, but I just wanted to leave space if there's anything else that you wanted to mention 
question. Yeah, well, you know, I think a lot about kind of what's the best way to create social change. <laughs> think about this constantly, obviously through policy, but kind of going back, how does the grassroots impact that? One thing I've started to think about is like, again, going back to neuroscience and climate, we have this visuospatial metaphor in our brains that time is space. That's why when you look at a calendar, you see that next week, there's like this much space before you hit next week, time is space. It's so intrinsic, we don't even think about it as a metaphor, but it is. So when you look at the history, there's actually this visual spatial metaphor that we have of like, this came next, and it was supposed to almost because it's on the line. You see it in history books, right? That timeline, this happened, the civil rights movement happened, people were given the right to vote happened, like, these things just kind of consequentially happened. And what I remind myself of is it not only didn't have to happen, it wasn't supposed to happen. All those things were not supposed to happen. When you look at all the groups that have been oppressed, which we have done that a lot in America, one thing we kind of think is that that progress was inevitable. Mm. That, you know, if those people hadn't fought for it, somebody else would have. That it was our destiny to change and to be better. And what I've realized is that's not true. But we still got better and have made progress over decades and centuries because people fought like hell against the order. So progress is not a natural force. It happens not because of the natural force of the world. It happens in spite of it. And when I think about that, it hit me that change is not predestined. It is earned. And that's what we have to think about with climate. This isn't going to happen on its own. It's happening. And we have this tremendous progress. We're getting there because of people who are like fighting like hell, which is pretty much everybody. And everybody, again, has this role to play. So and, and that's the power, too, of framing. And there's this cognitive linguist named George Lakoff in the US who has done a lot of work from UC Berkeley on he's one of the foremost experts on metaphor. He's done a lot of work on reframing and has basically shown that when you have a thought, it actually fires a web of neurons in your brain. And when you have that thought again, it fires again, that web grows stronger. So if you've taken a neuroscience class, neurons that fire together, wire together. So one thing we have to realize is that thought suppression, when you look at the research, is not effective. This is actually called the white bear problem, which is that when you are told not to think about something, you are likelier to think about it. Like if somebody's ever told you, don't be anxious, you're now more anxious. It's like, imagine if you're sitting on a park bench and somebody walks up to you and they're like, don't be embarrassed about your outfit. And they walk away. <laughs> right? You're not like, you're like looking at your outfit. You're like, oh God, I didn't know I was supposed to be embarrassed about it. That's the white bear problem. So we have a tendency to try to negate existing anti-climate narratives. And in the process, we advance them. And so one thing is that we have to be very careful about that. And like a quick example is when people say climate action hurts the economy, which is just completely factually not true. We turn around and say, no, it does not hurt the economy. So we're still wiring climate action and hurt economy. When we say no, it, it doesn't have much of an impact negating it, you have to reframe and say something like climate action represents the greatest economic opportunity of the 21st century. Now we're wiring economic opportunity and climate. And if we do that enough, we're firing that web enough, then those things will eventually be kind of intrinsically linked in people's brains. They're now going to associate those things together. Climate change and doom, climate change and the carbon footprint, climate change and fear, climate change and we're too late. Those are wired, right? Those narratives were established. So we need to create these new ones through reframing. That's incredible. And I think that's kind of how we think of like planting seeds, right? It's like that initial neural pathway that you create, then people will probably find other ways to start validating that. I don't know if that's accurate, but cool. yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And this is, I think really fast where creatives play a role. Where yeah. artists play a role because they have the power to make people feel that hope we need people to feel. 
that hope that psychology tells us is effective and to literally reframe these narratives so that we're no longer saying climate change is worth it, which is really saying climate change is worth the consequences, worth the sacrifices. We need to reframe into hope, opportunity, feasibility, and momentum and systemic change. I love that. We're going to leave it off on that. (laughs) Mic drop, done. (laughs) Um, But actually, before we really close it out, if people wanted to get involved or follow the work that you're doing, what's the best way for people to find you? I have a website, mollykawahata.com, and um, I've started to do a lot more climate stuff on social media on like TikTok and Instagram as I better learn. I mean, TikTok is quite a platform to learn about, but it's an incredible opportunity to talk to more folks. So yeah, I would love to hear from you feel free to reach out. We'll link all of that in the show notes so people can follow up for sure. But thank you again so much, Molly, for joining me. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. It's a total pleasure. And thank you to all the listeners who are part of the climate movement and helping bring it forward. Very grateful for you all. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of The Inner Circle. If you'd like to learn more about the foundation, you can visit our website at impactzero.ca. You can also find us on Instagram at impactzero.ca and as well on LinkedIn, Impact Zero Foundation. Thanks again for hanging out with us today and we'll see you next week.